the only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone and this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Now later on, we'll be joined by the big O, David Ornstein. He's going to talk about Project Restart and what it'll mean for the Arsenal. First, let me introduce our regular guests, Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas and Lee Dixon. Hello, everyone. Hello. Morning. Morning. Uh, Last week I was a legend. This week I'm just Lee Dixon. Thanks for that. (laughs) It's hard to find different ways of saying you're a legend. No, let's just say that. That's fine. (laughs) Uh, All right, then. Should we redo it or should we just carry on? By the way, Lee, I was watching a rerun of England v Columbia last night, right? And when we won the penalty shootout, it cut back to the studio and there were you and Wrighty jumping about and hugging. And I noticed neither of you really wanted to hug Gary Neville. It was a little bit awkward, I felt. No, it was it was very awkward because we had to... It was, I, I tried to hold on to Wrighty's shoulder and not let him in, but he broke... <laughs> He broke through the fence and then we sort of did that awkward sort of no you're a United player, get off hug. Yeah. And then uh, and then he sat down and threw his papers in the air. So yeah, it was it was a little bit awkward. It was a strange moment. The Premier League is about to get going again and Arsenal have a nice easy start away at Manchester City on the 17th of June. So today, as we've got some actual football to talk about, we're going to talk about Mikel Arteta. Um, we wanted to think about What's been the highlight of his uh, of his reign so far? Amy, I'll come to you first. Uh, it has to be the Gabriel Martinelli uh, barnstorming run where he left uh, despairing uh, N'Golo Kante in his wake who lost his footing. And then it, there's a great moment where he reaches out with his arm. It's an instinct. To, you know, he, he, he tries to hook him down with his hand, but uh, doesn't quite reach. And those few seconds when Martinelli is at sort of full pelt, uh, burning through the ground at Stamford Bridge towards the Arsenal supporters who are kind of pulling him towards them and Cooley finishes. And uh, there's that lovely celebration where you see that moment that he copies a fella in a grey sweatshirt in the crowd crossing his arms and thinks, I'll do that too. And it it was just a one of those real moments where your heart's beating like a, kind of snare roll uh, of a drum and um, it's electric and to have a young boy like that uh, on a stage like that um, produce something like that was just one of those where you think that's that's why you want to go to football matches you want to be inside a stadium while a, a kind of sort of great theatrical moment unfolds in front of your eyes and it gave that real sense of hope I think that Arsenal were onto something new after, you know, so many difficult moments in the season to have something uplifting and youthful. Not that it was the first time we had a young and uplifting moment from the team, but it felt like a really important one. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, James, you have some issues with Chelsea. I know that. You must have enjoyed that moment. <laughs> I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. And i tell you what I particularly enjoyed about it was that you know, Martinelli was about to come off at one point because Arsenal had gone down to 10 men, hadn't they, in the first half and Arteta was looking at changing it. But he, he ended up sticking with the youngster and, and keeping a relatively attacking shape given that we had 10 men and we got the rewards and that was a great moment. But I was actually going to pick uh, Arteta's first win as Arsenal coach because that came against Manchester United on New Year's Day and he, he had to wait for a little while. I think we drew against Bournemouth 
Um, and then we we lost to Chelsea somewhat unfortunately. But to get the first win on uh, against United, who, you know, we all have our antipathy towards because of Gary Neville and all that history, was great. And it came on New Year's Day too. So it really uh, created that sense of a, a fresh start, which was very much needed after a really difficult few months. It's just a shame uh, it didn't sustain quite as long as we might have liked. No, it was fun to watch though. Lee, what about you? Well, firstly, that that bloke in the grey sweater at Chelsea must have been you, Stoney, because I've seen your wardrobe. Were you in the? Was he copying you? It was, know. in fact, my son. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't me. But thank you. Uh, um, what one moment? I think mine's probably a, a collective non-one moment um, point, and it, I think it's. But he's definitely, um, since he's been there, he's definitely had a, an effect on the training ground and he's put a smile back on a few people's faces. Um, not that I'm big for smiling, as you know, um, but there's got to be a reason. I think after the what had gone on before with the coach and the manager, I think um, he had a very difficult period of, of coming into the club and being so um, young in his managerial career and everybody saying he's you know or not everybody but quite a lot of people saying it was going to be a bit too much for him because it's his first job and that I think um, you know changing that philosophy in the in the uh, training ground is probably his biggest uh, or the biggest highlight for me that we've seen a little bit of more accountability and a little bit more uh, verve, if you like, whether that's lasted or not is debatable, and we can, you know, argue the the pros and cons of where the team are at right now. But um, but probably on an equal part of that is the um, is the Adidas kit. I just have to mention that that's probably been my <laughs> highlight. The fact that we've gone back to Adidas kit. Nice. So uh, yeah, I like that kit. Um, I'm going to have. Uh, you know, it's interesting, James. You mentioned that that game when we unfortunately lost against Chelsea. It was interesting when I got back from that with my son. We went to the game, and he said, "He said I'm gutted after losing that." And he said, "I haven't felt that in a while, not really." And I thought that was interesting. That first half, even the first sixty minutes or so, we were the better team in that game, and we should have won that game. And the fact that we lost, it didn't diminish from for me the feeling that something has changed here. As soon as they started, the tempo was different. It just felt like a different team. So for me, that was sort of the highlight, just straight away seeing, ah, oh, things have changed. And and um, from a non-footballing basis, um, him getting coronavirus, and I think it saved quite a lot of lives on a quite a serious note. I think if Mikel Arteta had not uh, tested positive, I think they would have played the next weekend, and I think it would have killed quite a lot of people. So um, for me, I'm just glad that it, that decision was taken out of the hands of the government by Mikel Arteta. I know he didn't do it on purpose, but I think we should all appreciate it. Um, he is our new manager, and uh, we are going to start Project Restart, 17th of June, as I said, uh, away at Man City. I wanted to ask, Lee, that, that you talked about this, you just touched on this, and you'll highlight that, that sort of the way that the training ground seemed to change pretty quickly. How long does it take to change a negative culture in the dressing room? Is it Could he just walk in and make a speech and everyone goes, oh, this guy knows what he's talking about and everything changes, or is it a longer-term thing? No, I think I think I think it's a long-term thing or a longer-term thing. Um, dressing room take a while to build. Um, once you've got the, it's like building a, a a shed in your garden. You have to have foundations. You have to have 
Um, you have to have a structure that is um, reasonably solid at the base, and that that comes from previous dressing rooms, how they how they um, kind of almost grow with the team, um, and then you get to a point where you can take two or three out and it won't really make any difference. So you can kind of keep rotating as long as the the base is there and you're passing on information and and, um, and your experience to the younger players and they're taking it on board and it can kind of organically grow into and, and keep going. But it, it all depends on the on, on, on what that base is made of, what the character of that of that of that dressing room is like, whether they've got the right um uh, morals etc uh, uh, about how the game is played all about what's expected of you and, and ultimately that comes from uh, the start of that like with George when he came in he had a, a basis to go on and what he saw was a dressing room that was kind of a little bit broken and he decided right I'm going to make this full of young boys um, young exper uh, inexperienced lads and I'm going to get rid of all the older guys and uh, that I don't think are working hard enough and then he created an environment that was built on the traditions of the club and then you then you add on to that the years and years of experience and then the teachings of that to the the new foreign players and all of that sort of stuff um it does take time and it, and he will it, the manager can have an influence on that by the players that he signs and if he signs the right players that have got that in them then they'll take it on board well, I mean that's an interesting point, Amy. You saw Mikel Arteta when he was um, when he was playing, and then you've seen him step into the managerial role. But from what Lee's saying, it's going to take a couple of years because he would want to ship out some of the players who aren't necessarily, you know, for want of a better word, the the right have the right morals and bring in people who who get it and who buy into what he wants to do. Um, that's a big question. Uh, I think the the problem with that is that nobody knows how on earth player trading is going to look by the time the next window opens. So whatever um, in a pre-COVID world Mikel Arteta might have had in mind about the sorts of players that he would change, take out the team and the sorts of players he would like to come in in terms of technical qualities and character. It's all um, very, very unpredictable now, I think. And I suspect that some clubs, and Arsenal won't be alone in this, will find that maybe it's trickier to do some of the business that that they might have done. Because certainly, you know, if you fast forward to whenever it is that a window reopens, um, those first moves will set a tone. And it will be interesting to see whether there are still some you know, some quite big deals out there to be had or whether there's a lot of bargains and tr trades going on or whether everybody's treading very, very carefully. But the, the squad does need some rebalancing. Um, Mikel Arteta is not the only person to, to, to reckon that, I'm sure. Um, but quite how they can best do that is going to be a challenge, particularly considering the fact that um, the financial situation at the club with a, with a, a high-wage bill... Um, with the fact that such a high percentage uh, of income comes from uh, bums on seats and from tickets sold, and God knows when that's going to be uh, a, a revenue stream that's that's opening up again. So I think we have to just tread carefully and trust. There might well be a bit of time for him to make the best of what he's got until I, it's whether or not, you know, I think he's a truly ambitious young coach. And 
how long will he kick around trying to build a team or a project if you're not managing to get the team that you feel can compete enough to get into the Champions League and be on those high echelons that he wants to be at? It's going to be really interesting to see how it unplays, not just over the next weeks or so, setting us up for the season to come, but looking ahead to the next, you know, one to two years, one to two seasons. Where's he going to go? It's not like, you know, he's got to sit around and, 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 and be that guy because he's not going to, you know, the fact he's ambitious and he's got his ideas about where he sees himself and if he doesn't see the money or, or, or the the um the ability to do that at arsenal then you know he's not they're not he's not going to be queues of clubs lining up for him in champions league spots going to take him as a manager he's got to, he's got to cut his teeth where he is he's got no choice i'm not talking about now i'm talking about in like i say like 18 months or two years we, we don't know what football's going to look like well james can i ask mm. a question then who who are the key men if what amy says is is right and i believe it is that there's going to be very little activity on the transfer market and even if there is we're not going to be at the front of the queue. Mm. Um, who are the key men in the dressing room right now who can move the club forward? Well, just to go back a step, I think while Lee's absolutely right, it, it will take time what Arteta's doing at Arsenal. One of the things that was impressive about him is how quickly he seemed to achieve buy-in from the squad of players that he had at his disposal. And he had two groups, really, that he had to look at and win over. As a coach with no track record, no experience as a head coach or a manager, he walked into that dressing room and there's a group of young British Academy players who you kind of thought, yeah, I can see that they might be invigorated by this youthful coach coming in. There might be a rapport there. But he also had some really experienced pros, people like Meza Ozil, people like Pierre-Eric Aubameyang, Alex Lacazette and others. And what Arteta did very well is he seemed to immediately get a lot of people on side, people who weren't, you know, who weren't in favour under Unai Emery or towards the end. Think of Granit Xhaka was out the door, wasn't he, after the whole captaincy incident? Shukodra Mustafi on the bench. Suddenly these guys were back in the team and also performing at a superior level to, to anything they'd produced really in the last 12 months. And I think, funnily enough, some of those guys will be really important to him. I mean, Aubameyang, he is still here for now. Uh, he is the club captain and he is probably the most important player given his goal scoring contribution. So inevitably he's going to lean on him. But I think when you look at the transfer market and what the, the consequences will be in that from coronavirus, the academy players become all the more important. So people like Bukayo Saka, people like, uh, you know, he's not an academy player, but Gabriel Martinelli, this youthful core are going to be crucial to Arsenal because they can save them potentially a lot of money if they go on to fulfil their potential. Uh, and, and, you know, they can form the building blocks for the squad for the next few years. So I think it's kind of at both ends. I think they're important experienced players, but I think the, the young players are important too. And I think in what remains of this season, it's kind of important that Arteta finds a balance and gives some of those guys experience, gives them a chance to develop because they are going to be the foundation of this squad going forward, especially if there's no money. In terms of leadership, Lee, I mean, you played under some amazing captains at Arsenal, Tony Adams, Patrick Vieira, but who is, I mean, I know that James said that um, Aubameyang's the club captain, but in terms of leadership on the pitch, who, who's going to do that job? I mean, and do we need someone to do that job? Well, I think you always need you always need somebody, uh, not necessarily one person. We were, I was very lucky enough to play with a lot of strong characters who you could 
you could throw the armband up and wherever it landed, that would be the captain. You know, you look at David Seaman could be captain because he, he had that presence, um, that stature. Any one of the back four could have held the, the, the captaincy for a season, you know, and, and carried carried that mantle. Um, we had certainly, you know, the two midfield players in Petit and Vieira. I mean, we had captains all over the place. So I think that's important. It's the character more than the armband. Um, so when you look at the team, you know, when you look at the team now, and it's obviously, um, and it was an issue before when you got the previous manager, you know, having a, a game of bingo to decide who was captain, then you, there is obviously a lack of obvious, um, and, it, and it, not necessarily when you look on the pitch, who who are the captains on the pitch? Who it t- it tends to be um, pretty evident. You know, off the pitch, in the training ground, in the dressing room at the training ground, that you you see the you know you see the captains. Our dressing room was was very, very vocal, very powerful, very you know you had to stand up and be counted in it. You know, no shrinking violets, and I, I'm not so sure. I'm you know there might be a load of um, friendly banter in the dressing room. I'm sure there is at, at Arsenal, but when it goes beyond that, and you're sitting down having those really important crisis meetings like you know back in the day when Tony called us all together because we'd lost at home to whoever it was Blackburn in the championship winning season or and and actually going you know we've got a crisis here it's borderline that we need to sort something out and you've got those really stern sort of faces looking at you and, and having an opinion to to how we go about it and not shirking not passing the responsibility not hiding that's when you see captain material and I look around this squad and again it's be unfair of me to to single out people and say I don't think this I don't think that because I'm not in the dressing room but I've been in the game long enough to recognize the signs of who can carry a, an armband and who who might not fancy it or so and and this team is He's kind of full of that type of player that I'm kind of I wouldn't well I've no idea and and I think the good captains you you have an idea you have an opinion without without too much of a of a problem. I think that's fair and I think that's why uh, that's why Unai kind of ended up hedging his bets a bit you know with the whole five captains thing and that worked out know, well didn't it. Yeah, not really, not really. I mean, four of them left, I think, in <laughs> summer of 2019, and then we were left with Shaka, and we all saw what happened there. And I think Aubameyang is, you know, he is the captain, but he's certainly a different type of leader uh, to the ones that that Tony play, uh, that Lee played under. Sorry, people like Tony or or Patrick. He's someone who leads, I guess, in terms of what he produces uh, more so than his character. Uh, so yeah, I think, but I think that. You know, I think that the the actual who wears the armband is, is something that's really, really important to fans. I think what's more important is to have those characters in the squad, to have people with those personalities. And of course, you know, we could definitely do with more of those. And uh, as as much as the transfer market is closed, maybe we can produce some. It'd be lovely to think that some of these academy kids might come through and, and be those figures for us. You know, but there's no one who you look at and go, well, he looks like Tony Adams did at 18 in terms of leadership and what what they could deliver. I would say that for whatever people think of Granite Xhaka as a player, I do think he's got pretty decent captaincy qualities, actually. And when you speak to people around the club, they regard him really highly for uh, the way he conducts himself, the way he has high standards and demands that of others. 
Uh, he has some authority in the dressing room. He's well liked and listened to, uh, and he tries to organise things on the pitch. You know, he might not be everybody's favourite at all times in terms of some of the um, the errors that he's made that have, that have cost uh, situations. But as a you know, when you're looking at captain qualities, he actually does have a lot of them, and I think they and I think that it's credit to him and to Arteta and to the club that that situation was retrieved. And it was important. I think you'll see in these next few weeks when football starts again that he will be a valuable member of the team for Arteta. Hey, Amy, I, well, I think you think when the captaincy thing was going on last year, I, you know, I was on record as saying um, about it, that, that exactly what you just said. I think this, he, he shows lots of qualities in that respect. I said it's not his fault. And this is this is my opinion of him as a player. It's not his fault that I don't think he's good enough to be our central midfield, you know, holding player or wherever he wants to play. It's not his fault that he gets picked every week. You know, that's the club policy of, of buying players and having a team structure that he fits into. But that's my opinion is he, he's not he's not good enough as a as a player to be. But as a person, as a as a captain, showing those qualities that you talked about, I didn't have a problem with him in that respect. Yeah, but that's the that's the difficulty, isn't it? It's not like cricket where you can have someone like, I don't know, Mike Brearley back in the 80s who clearly wasn't good enough to be in the team except for his captaincy. Football's not like that. You can't have a guy being carried in central midfield and and whatever else you say about Granite Xhaka, there were four or five times last season. I watched it enough on Match of the Day and I've seen you do it as well, Lee, analysing times where he's let players run off him and score. But that's and not his. That's not. It's not his fault. That's my point. Is it's not his fault that he keeps getting picked every week, and then, you know, he, and he's been vilified for his mistakes. Then you know, as a player, you have to take responsibility, and ultimately, you you are then left out by the manager because you're not doing your job. If the manager keeps picking you, what are you supposed to do? Turn around and say, well, do you know what? I don't want to play today because I'm not good enough. You know, he believes he is, and 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 he, you know, I. He gets picked and he goes and, and does his stuff. But I think as a as a captain, and um and that that stature in a club, it does carry with it. Oh, you lead by example, and everyone looks at him and goes, "Oh, actually, he's actually not good enough." But I felt a little bit sorry for him when it was when the cat that captaincy um, debacle was going on because, he, you know. It, there's certain things out of his control and getting picked every week and, and being offered the captaincy was not was out of his control. Someone offered it to him and said, you're, you're now the captain or we're voting for you because you've got great qualities. Well, you know, and then get picked on a Saturday. But the team wasn't good enough uh, to be able to not play him. It would be interesting to sort of find out more about Arteta's perception of and relationship to the captaincy because he was club captain of Arsenal himself and interestingly he was club captain for a sustained period of about two years where he barely played a game and yet in that time he remained captain he was injured you know on and off uh, but but everybody still spoke incredibly highly of him and his contribution to the club and the example Who, who's he that, set down who's that everybody sorry James when you say everybody just in general do you mean by that yeah, I no, I mean uh I mean Arson for one. Not the fans. Yeah. Uh, I mean Arson, I mean other people at the training ground who said, you know, his attitude was exemplary and a, you know, a great example for others to follow. So I suppose I just mean it's interesting to think about what that role of the captain is and how he sees it. 
Like, does he see it as someone who has got to be out there on the pitch every single week, you know, at the heart of the team? Or does he see it as someone who sets the right standards in terms of attitude and application? Both. Mm. Surely both. I mean, sorry, Tony Adams and Patrick Vieira did both those things. And, and Granite Xhaka didn't. Yeah, but we haven't got one of those. Quite. I mean, look, we've had this conversation about captains uh, quite a few times in the past, but I wanted to just ask a couple of questions before we let you go, Lee. Um, in fact, it's all of you, really. Do you think, and this is following a little, a little bit from the conversation that myself and James and Amy had last week, we got some questions, and, and one of them was talking about how far, it, how badly it could go wrong if Arsenal don't sort things quickly. Do you think this is the most crucial period in recent Arsenal history? And by that, I mean, if we don't qualify for the Europa and we don't have money and we sell star players, we could be in the wilderness for a number of years. I'm just genuinely asking the question. I don't have an agenda. Uh, Lee, I'll come to you first. Well, I think um, if you take the, the virus and the situation of where football is out the equation for a minute and say, say we go back in time and we're still in the season, we've still got nine games to go, whatever it is, then, yeah, of course, the, the actual qualifying for... Um, uh, a European place was based on the finances, etc., of where the club is at, what the club needs to repair the team. Then you'd say, absolutely, got to finish in. They've got to get some some money coming in from somewhere because we've all seen the we've all seen the accounts, and that was two or three. You know, when we started to be out the Champions League, how dire it was, and how um, on a collision course with uh, pending doom financially it was if we weren't in Europe. Now add on to the um, where football is, which we don't really know from financial point of view, as Amy just pointed out. Then it's at, we're absolutely on the precipice of of, of maybe being, you know, mediocrity uh, bound for for a period of time because all, most of the club, well, not all the clubs, but a lot of the clubs will be in the similar sort of boat. The, the transfer fees, the transfer market is going to be an unknown. You know who's going to be paying out that sort of money, etc. Where are you going to get the players from? It might the transfer fees might all come down, in which case everyone's on a similar thing. But where who's who's done the best uh, COVID um, protocol in getting the finances right? Who's you know the richer clubs become more rich because they've done it better or worse? Or so we're in a completely uh, we're, you know, there's no anchor. We're all drifting about, but but because of the status we've um, uh, acquired over the years, because of our uh, success, then then we're being highly looked at by everybody, and quite rightly so, because the standards we've set over the last recent years have been far below where this club should be. So it absolutely that important that we hit the ground running and somehow try and get to the next level which when you think the next level is Europa League then <laughs> that's where we've got, we've dropped to that's where we are Amy do you do you uh, agree with Lee I mean we talked about this a bit last week and it's a, a worrying thing to, to to drift and have mediocrity but you know some of us are old enough to remember those periods in the past and football is cyclical and if you do end up dipping out of it then a club like Arsenal need to work damn hard to try and get back into it so I, I think in many ways, I'm quite intrigued by this little period of, uh, of the season project restart coming up to see what Arsenal look like, uh, to see how much Arteta can um, continue the work that he started, 
where there was so much intensity of games every you know every five minutes and no training sessions and no time to stop and think and actually they've had a lot of time to stop and think and I'm sure there's been tons and tons of communication and although the preparations won't have been collective and you, know, you can't work on combinations so much there could have been a lot behind the scenes to try and get people understanding certain ways of thinking in terms of, of the way they want to approach the game. And maybe this, you know, these next few weeks provide Arsenal... The, the, the games look really hard, let's be honest, um, but also pressure-wise, I mean, I think most people look at the table and think qualifying for Europe still feels like a bit of a long shot. So just seeing another gear of progress would be really, really encouraging and hopefully allow Arteta to have a much clearer idea of what he can do with this club for next season. And what would be what would be a successful end to the season then, James? What do you think? I think uh, if we can squeak into Europe, I think we have to regard that as a success from where we are. I know it's not a success in terms of where we want to be. Um, I mean, I, I'm casting eyes at the FA Cup. I have to say Arsenal in a quarter-final there against Sheffield United, you know, a couple of games away from a final, a trophy, that would be incredibly welcome. That would come, of course, with Europa League qualification. So I think that should be a bit of a focus too for the club. Uh, I think top four is really tricky given not the, not so much the gap, but the amount of teams in between us and the top four. You know, there's a lot of teams we'd be hoping to slip up. But I think Amy's also right, having an eye on the long term and looking ahead to, to next season because... As as bad as the situation is, uh, I, I can't help but feel that maybe it's a bit of a financial leveller in some respects. Obviously, clubs like Manchester City are still going to have some insulation against this crisis. But maybe others that might have had more spending power than us aren't going to. And given the academy players that we do have and the, the experience they've already accumulated by being part of the squad this season and last to an extent, we might actually be in a better position than some other clubs to not so much capitalised, but sort of, you know, do okay in this period. I hope so anyway. That's the fan in me. I really, really hope so. We might have had a touch with Sheffield United not being able to play in front of their fans as well. That might help us in the FA Cup. Um, Lee, we're going to let you go now. It's been nice to talk to you, as always. And you. See you next week. Speak to you next week. Thanks to Lee Dixon, as always, uh, for his insight less for his jokes but you know it's okay still here with Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas joined also uh, by David Ornstein good afternoon David hi guys how are you yeah I mean we're fine you know that question's a big one at the moment but <laughs> it is isn't it let's be fair but let's I think we're, we're, we are doing fine um David, of course, uh, working for The Athletic, uh, doing the uh, Ornstein and Chapman podcast. I'm sure you've been talking quite a lot about uh, Project Restart, uh, 17th of June. We get going again, uh, all things considered. It is, it's a positive thing, is it not? Yeah, I think so, for the resumption of football, certainly. And, you know, the industry and those of us that work within it want and need football to come back, but... It has to happen when it's safe. It cannot be 100% safe because there's no vaccine for this virus. And so you've got to get as close to you as possible um, as you can. And that's what football, the Premier League in particular, believes it is doing. And certainly in terms of its training grounds, uh, the protocols and precautions that are in place, uh, 
they'll replicate them on match days by all accounts and it seems that the vast majority of players and staff are content. I wouldn't necessarily say happy. I think the players are happy to be back out on the grass and looking forward to getting on with their trade again, but content in terms of this is not an ideal scenario for anyone. And there are a small number of players and, and staff who aren't happy and, and some who maybe won't be coming back. But Project Restart has a provisional date, the 17th of June. So we're two weeks away now. Full training has resumed uh, and... It sounds to me like training sessions are pretty much in, in their normal form now. Uh, of course, the sh- fairly strict restrictions are, in, uh, are applying in terms of social distancing outside and where possible within those training sessions. But uh, it's full steam ahead. Of course, football will be led by the government. If anything changes in the guidance, then they'll have to adhere to that. If uh, any positive tests occur, they'll have to treat them accordingly. And they'll hope that they get back playing and conclude the season without any glitches. But I don't think anyone's getting complacent enough to think that there won't be bumps in the road along the way. No, quite. And and uh, Amy, James, I mean, we're all we all feel slightly conflicted, don't we, about this whole thing? While while this awful uh, the coronavirus is happening out in the big world, but football is a business, and and there's a lot of people employed in that business. And um, perhaps it will provide some uh, some distraction. A little bit of entertainment is not a bad thing, is it not? Absolutely. I mean, it is a business, but it's also entertainment, right? And it's a, a passion for so many people. And I do think as fans, it's going to be great to, to watch our team play again. I mean, you know, we've all looked over at the Bundesliga and some of the games there have been fantastic but maybe you're not that invested in the team or the players but when it's your team when it's your club out there even in an empty stadium I think you're still going to get a bit of that buzz you're still going to jump up when they score you're still going to be furious when they concede Uh, and we're still going to talk about it here like we do every single week during the normal season so Yes, I think there is a bit of conflict. There's a bit of discomfort because we're going into new uncharted territory. This is not football as we have necessarily been accustomed to it. But I think it's very welcome to see it back. And I say that not just with my professional hat on, but I say it as a fan who is really looking forward to watching the Arsenal play again. Yeah, David, I was just wondering if in all the discussions that they've had so far about restarting football... um, has there been any consideration about, obviously not now, but when there might be a situation where fans can be reintroduced into a stadia, presumably in smaller numbers to start with and then build up? Do you think that that's just miles away and they're not even thinking about it? Or do you think that there are people at certain levels beginning to have a think about when that might be possible? It's certainly a discussion that's... Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's certainly a discussion that's gone on in Spain. And we were talking about it on yesterday's uh, podcast with Dermot Corrigan, uh, uh, our reporter over there. And, and he says that it's a, an active discussion about sort of phasing fans back into grounds and that Javier Tebas, the um, La Liga president, has spoken quite openly on that. There have been reports that the FA Cup final could see some spectators, sort of 10,000 from each club. Uh, I don't know anything about that and there would be 
some quite significant logistical problems with that in terms of public transport and how you manage it all. But certainly in the the last few days, you're starting to hear more and more conversations across European football about how you would be able to accommodate supporters in some form, whether it be spacing um, them out across you know seats at a social distance um, making sure there's enough loos and access points and that the um, concourses aren't too narrow etc uh, etc et um, I haven't had any conversations with people at the Premier League or within clubs that suggest this is something that's imminent but I do think uh, Richard Masters the Premier League chief executive has given a couple of interviews now where he's sort of intimated that it's an avenue they'll be looking to explore in due course cricket's been uh looking at it as well i know surrey have uh been talking about whether they could allow some members in to watch matches at the oval at a social distance and of course it may only provide a, a small amount of income and and sort of pleasure as well for those fans but that's better than nothing and and the idea that we could be staring at nothing for uh, the rest of this season and potentially even the whole of next season, potentially beyond, who knows, um, is pretty unpalatable for some, but also it, it would be financially disastrous for others. And I guess that takes us back a little bit to Ian's question about um, is this a good thing or not? There are some people that don't like this conversation we're having because there are still high death tolls, not only in, in the UK, but around the world. Um, my view is that the two can coexist. Um this industry and clubs that I speak to who I really sort of value their uh, opinion and integrity on this. They're not just saying it because they want to get back to line their pockets with money. It is important for, for the show to go on if safety can be ensured to as great an extent as possible. Um, yeah, but that is the question, is it not, David, to as great an extent as possible? I mean, how can you... How can we know? I mean, how many how many positive coronavirus tests there have to be before they go, this is too many? I don't think the Premier League guidance has been concluded on, for example, how many positive tests would take place before you say a team can't fulfil a fixture. And these are still conversations that need to be uh, hammered out in, in the Premier League meetings and at, and at government level and between the government and the Premier League. Um, but there was an executive, uh, one of the top Premier League clubs, who was saying to me, while there's no vaccine, we we can't be sure of anything. And so do we just stop industries, stop football, stop garden centres, stop theatre, restaurants, uh, businesses? Do we stop them completely or do we try and get back to the best of our ability? There are some very uncomfortable conversations to be had around that and there are some strong opinions around it as well. But I think the view of football is that if other industries are allowed, are allowed to recommence, then football should be treated in the same way. And if you look through the documentation that Premier League clubs and EFL clubs are working by on return to training, um, the guidelines, and I know this is a phrase that has been um, trotted out ac across the media, uh, there is no safer place or very few safer places than a football training ground at the moment. The, the level of cleanliness and precaution that they're going to is absolutely extraordinary now in other industries agreed they don't rub heads they don't tussle at set pieces um, but they hope that the testing will be able to mitigate the risk in that sense and at least bring some sort of clarity to it so uh, you know back to that point I, d I do think we can be excited about the return I do think it's important for many but I, I also understand the other perspective as well 
quite. I wanted to ask about the fitness, uh, particularly the Arsenal players. I read somewhere, possibly just some person on Twitter, if I'm totally honest, but someone said the Arsenal boys' fitness is very good. Uh, is that true? And, and how comes that's the case? Well, Arsenal went into lockdown earlier than pretty much every other club because of Mikel Arteta's positive test. Uh, and so they were very quickly on to training programmes from home um, and how they could maintain a level of fitness. They were one of the first clubs, to my knowledge, to get uh, equipment sent out by courier to players' homes in terms of treadmills, uh, watt bikes or spinning bikes, um, weights and you know make sure that they were in the best possible position to um keep their levels at a in at a reasonable uh state then they came back into training at pretty much the same time as everybody else and of course other clubs would have been a, a reasonably similar level some i know to a lesser extent they they didn't do a great deal at home and others probably may have done even more um i've heard that arsenal in pretty good shape, itching to go, the players all enthusiastic. They have had various issues behind the scenes uh, across the last few months to do with coronavirus, and so have many other clubs as well. N hasn't necessarily been publicised, and so that has limited uh, or complicated things at uh, across the Premier League, across the EFL as well. But yeah, from what I hear, the fitness levels are good, the enthusiasm's good, the training sessions are going well. We do have to remember that injuries are going to be picked up. There have been, um, I've heard of a number of injury, soft tissue injuries at Tottenham. I've heard of one at Liverpool on the very first day of uh, the resumption of training. It'd be naive of us to think that hasn't happened at your Arsenal's, your Chelsea's, various other places. I think I was reading somewhere that Chelsea players are all reporting blisters from the resumption of training. So, um, yeah, I think Arsenal will be in decent shape. One thing that's clear from speaking to people there is that they were really pleased with the momentum they had built up on the pitch before the lockdown. And so... They were eager to get back playing and see if they can make a, a final push for Champions League qualification or, or to finish the season on a high. So everybody I spoke to at Arsenal uh, was was keen for the season to resume. There were no thoughts, to my knowledge, of, the, of curtailment or um, uh, null and void or anything like that. A couple of things for me, David. I mean, one of the reasons I guess Arsenal's so keen to get back playing is because there is that that chance of European qualification, you know, be that the Europa League or even potentially the Champions League if if the fifth place works out and Manchester City aren't in the competition. Are there any kinds of conversations yet about whether or not continental or European football is even a realistic prospect uh, next season? Uh, and secondly, I just wanted to ask, I mean, Arsenal, it seems a long time ago now, but were arranged the pay cut, you know, the 12.5% pay cut for the vast majority of their squad. And are you surprised at all that we haven't seen more teams in the Premier League following suit with cuts of their own? On Europe, I was actually talking to somebody yesterday who said, look, you're talking to me about transfers. We don't even know if there's going to be European competition next season. Mm. And, and that's very much the point you're making. And just knowing UEFA, I don't see how they wouldn't try and uh, put plans in place to make sure that uh, European competition is possible. They've already set aside the month of August to try and get this season's Champions League completed. We are seeing a, a slight relaxation in, in air travel and the movement of people in other European countries. Um, 
I think with some of these things, it's best not to look at it on the sort of alarmish, drastic, immediate scale and look more incrementally and uh, how we've built since March and the lockdown and, and everybody uh, behind closed doors in their houses to where we are now is, is quite significant. And if you go three months ahead, then hopefully for the world we'll be in, in an even better place in terms of uh, infection rate, death toll uh, and the ability of businesses, industries to get back on their feet. And that, and that includes football travel and um, in this case, European football. So I haven't heard the much suggestion that European football is under threat it's obviously going to be very complicated um, I mentioned a few weeks ago I, I didn't understand how the Champions League uh, final stages were going to be completed but it seems that UEFA are looking at uh, doing so in in one particular location, uh, maybe single legged quarterfinals, and then um, get the semis and, and final played in in the subsequent days. So that it'll be very interesting to see not so much if European football will continue to exist, but in what format uh, in the sort of months or couple of years ahead. Uh, what was your second question? The wage cuts. Um, yes and no. Am I surprised if? Am I surprised that other clubs didn't follow suit? Uh, Arsenal's decision was pretty controversial within football because there was guidance from Professional Footballers Association and this was communicated among the captain, the so-called captains group. I think it's a WhatsApp group with leading players, some of them captains, some of them PFA representatives, um, that you don't. we don't take cuts. That's the decision. That's the guidance from the PFA. We don't take cuts. And... Everybody, uh, at every club followed that guidance, apart from at Arsenal, where um, Hector Bellerin was in touch with the club and the PFA, um, and they did decide to to follow that course. And depending on who you speak to, that was a very uh, noble and correct course of action. Football desperately needs uh, money to be saved, and player wages are the biggest cost and outgoing and that Arsenal's cuts only represented a drop in the ocean anyway for what money they could lose in, in the months and, and years ahead because of this pandemic. Others would say um, it was naive, they've got a billionaire owner, they shouldn't have been taking cuts before knowing where those cuts are going to be used and how how it's going to take place. They didn't take external consultation from representatives and lawyers, etc. They had the wall pulled over their eyes. So there are arguments on both sides of it here. Um, the decision of Arsenal players ultimately will, will have gone down very well with the club because they wanted and needed this. Um, they pleaded with their players to take it. They were seeing uh, wage cuts taking place all over Europe in other countries at some of the biggest clubs and throughout the leagues uh, and Arsenal followed suit on that and and many people will say fair play and I know at, at other clubs the ownership it was described to me yesterday that football players are currently the bane of most owners lives because they're a huge expense and they're not kicking a ball so they want them to get and and they, and they didn't take cuts unlike most other clubs and, and leagues around Europe. So um, did it surprise me? No, because the guidance was not to take cuts. But yes, in the sense that cuts need to be uh, taken if football's going to... And, and I mean across the board, so not just players, if football's going to be in a healthier situation. Now, it got put on the back burner because things like um, the return to play 
took over, the testing, uh, so many sort of more pressing issues for the absolute immediate term. And of course, if you get back playing, then some of the financial um, uh, losses may be mitigated. So that is quite rightly a priority. But it'll be very interesting to see if it reoccurs, if when we know the television uh, rebates for for certain, if we know what losses clubs are staring at from uh, missing gate receipts, uh, broadcasting income, commercial revenue, then we'll wage cuts and deferrals come back on the table um it's it's a really interesting subject i do know that many contracts will be changing going forward you know they'll be looking at uh, ever more performance related incentives um you know cutting back on the money that's paid making it proportional to the amount of games that players and clubs play to effectively insert a force majeure clause even if you don't insert a specific one um so a lot to be sorted out on that and it it is divisive among you know the players at arsenal among their people among people at players and representatives at other clubs but ultimately arsenal did it and whatever side of the fence you sit on that's a debate that will continue just um vaguely related to all of that uh obviously season ticket renewals uh, there was the message that came out recently um, suggesting that for unplayed games of this season, either any season ticket holders could have a credit or could, if they were fin- suffering financial difficulty, have uh, some money back, which I thought was very well handled by Arsenal. But um, they did start sending out their club-level renewals quite recently. And actually, um, they are based on, it seems, uh, costs of tickets as if Arsenal might be in the Champions League which is quite interesting. And um, I think the thinking is, you, you know, you, you, you shell out for your club level season ticket. And if that's not the case, then they will, uh, they will reimburse you for if it's Europa League or indeed no Europe at all. Um, but I mean, that it just goes to show that somewhere along the line, you know, trying to, trying to rake some money and even when nobody knows if they're going to go to a game or not for a while is sort of still got to be on the agenda within the club. And I think it's a really difficult balancing act for them. You know, um, I spoke to a pal of mine who's been going for decades, uh, who said he just couldn't work out, you know, what to do about when the renewal comes, um, doesn't know how many games he's going to get to. He's got underlying health issues and doesn't have, can't get his head around the fact that he might one day be able to go back into a crowd anytime soon. And on the other hand, doesn't want to, relinquish a season ticket that he's had for 30 or 40 years or so so there's some interesting stuff ahead on on that front yeah it really is and it it seems like clubs in the premier league from the communications i've seen that they've sent out to their supporters uh, almost taking a a unified approach now which is uh, you can get your refund or you can donate money to a cause or uh, you can uh, receive a credit so and they're at pains to say that they're not going to hold it against people, whatever they decide to do, and that they're free to make their own choice, etc., etc. It's quite delicate, isn't it? They're probably going to, and I don't mean it, this to sound ha- harsh, try it on a bit, uh, push the limits, because they are facing such a financial predicament that if they can get some money in and there is still the hope that matches will be played at some point in front of crowds, then it helps the balance sheet in a, in a way that, you know, they would have expected big money to be coming in at this time of year. The rug's been pulled from beneath their feet and in that sense at the worst possible moment. Um, 
But there is transparency there. I would like to think that they're all offering the refund as an option and um, and you'd like to think they'd honour that. They, they've got to be so careful with their public pronouncements on this. And it's going to lead to a lot of speculation, isn't it, on how valuable football fans are to the club, the, the match-going fans. Um, it doesn't represent an enormous proportion of, of their income these days compared to television money and commercial revenue i think arsenal rely on on match day income more than many of the biggest clubs in the premier league and europe at around 25 percent i was seeing in a in a deloitte report a while ago um and i think tottenham were the closest in the premier league on on 19 percent so it's quite interesting what we also don't know is how much of a factor the fans are to broadcasters and how much that is part of the product that they pay for because some clubs may say actually it's not not a great loss to us financially by not having fans in the stadium for a period but if the broadcasters turn around and don't like the product that they're receiving um, and you know we were led to believe around the time of uh, Arsene Wenger's departure that one of the factors that Stan Kroenke wasn't happy with was seeing swathes of empty seats broadcast around the world um, and in his case to the USA and and that that was I don't know whether it was somewhat embarrassing or uncomfortable um, but l- let's see in time what the broadcasters make of it because that may influence how how the clubs feel towards their supporters and, and the match day going attendance. Uh, David very nice to talk to you you're back with um, Orsine and Chapman. Yep it comes out every Tuesday morning and um, we had a really good chat this week with Fabrice Moamba um, on How's issues. He, doing? he Well, for a start, he's doing well. He's very healthy um, and incredible to think that what it's just over, I think it was about eight years ago, that he essentially died on the field of play in an FA Cup game for Bolton at Tottenham when his his heart stopped and and he's a great guy fab got to know him well and um and he's in good shape lovely beautiful family and he was talking very eloquently on the player's perspective on return to play he's a pfa sort of executive delegate he deals with the players he knows what they're going through the likes of troy dini and golo kante and there is, as we said earlier, a different side to this story that that must be considered and respected. Uh, he also spoke very well on Black Lives Matters and the absolutely astonishing and, and terribly upsetting issues that are going around on around the world and especially in America. And the responsibility of us all to stand up in this situation and, and help in whatever way we can. Uh, so it was really good to, to speak to Fab. Uh, and I'd recommend you listen to that. We also have Matt Slater on talking about the EFL and issues that are really, really important on the return of football, but I'm not nearly well-educated enough to explain. He's he's brilliant on that. And then also, as I mentioned, Dermot Corrigan on Spain, um, who, in his words, have had a remarkably smooth return to uh, action. They're not quite there yet, but they're ahead of England. And he talks about Paul Pogba, uh, where his future may lie. Uh, Ferran Torres, a young player that many clubs in the Premier League will be looking out for. Uh, So yeah, check out the Ornstein and Chapman podcast. And thanks for having me on yours. It's, It's a pleasure. Thanks again to David Ornstein uh, for coming on the show. As he said, the Ornstein and Chapman podcast every Tuesday uh, morning. Uh, now, uh, Amy, you've been 
furiously writing away. This week you've been writing about uh, David Luiz. Yeah, um, it was uh, quite an interesting story where um, I got some information from a, a, a very well-regarded source uh, about the breakdown of, of some of the fees relating to the deal for David Luiz. Um, uh, to bring him into the club, it's been reported that as a, a year contract uh, with a, a, an option to trigger for another year. The information we got suggested that there was quite a, a large seeming percentage that went in intermediate fees as part of this deal. It was £8 million uh, fee to Chelsea and £10 million in annual salary for David Luiz. Uh, obviously, bringing in a player of Premier League pedigree and experience who won stuff, which was really important, particularly in the light of Laurent Koscielny leaving in a hurry last summer. Um, those figures were disputed by Arsenal and uh, David Luiz's representative, Keir Jarabchian. Um, so all the sides of the story are there. I think it's not that unusual to have uh, a story that has contrasting or differing or disputed information in it. So that's where we are with this. I mean, you guys are around the club much more and have spoken to various people within football much more than I have. I mean, James, is this normal, this amount of money going to people just to fix a deal? I think that high agents' fees are increasingly prevalent in football generally. And I think the way in which Arsenal interacts with agents and uses agents is changing. Um, in some ways, in some ways, there are benefits to that. I mean, for a long period under Arsene Wenger, when Ivan Gazidis and Dick Law were predominantly involved with negotiating transfers, you know, Arsenal went through a long time where they missed out on a lot of players. And I've written enough articles about the players they didn't sign and the reasons they didn't sign them. And often, often that came down to the demands of an intermediary or the demands of an agent. Now, Arsenal have got a very different way of operating now, where they have much closer relationships with certain key intermediaries. And it does appear that Keir Drabchen is one. I mean, he's got a relationship with Edu that predates Edu coming back to Arsenal as technical director. He's obviously involved with David Luiz, Cedric Suarez. So clearly, you know, that, that is a bit of a relationship that exists. And Rausenier, he, he has this big black book and he knows a lot of people in football. Uh, you know, there are lots of other agents you could mention that he's got strong relationships with. And sometimes that enables you to do a deal that you might not otherwise be able to do. But sometimes there is a cost to that to that deal. And sometimes that can result in a high agents fee. And what will be really interesting is that Premier League clubs are obliged to declare the fees they have paid to agents in any given year. And ordinarily, those figures come out in April. But I think on account of coronavirus and various other things, those figures have not yet emerged. But it will be really interesting to see when it comes out where exactly Arsenal sit in that league table and how much of a departure it is from how they've previously operated. And I'm expecting a, a significant rise uh, in the fees that Arsenal have paid to agents. And I can understand fans who who feel a bit frustrated by that and don't really like to see the money the club has, which we understand is fairly limited resource, being allocated in that way. In terms of his actual playing time and what he's done so far, I know that the club saw it as good as uh, as a good deal. Mm. What do you think, Amy? Looking back, the vast majority of people were quite excited by David Luiz coming for yeah. a, a transfer fee of £8 million, which in the pre-COVID market, it was not an outrage, um, given that he was one, he is one of the few players in the squad with an absolute wealth of winning experience behind him. Uh, and I think he 
although he's had um, some uh, vulnerable moments on the pitch, particularly early on under Unai Emery, um, the, there's been a marked improvement with uh, the arrival of Mikel Arteta. Plus, I think, again, we were talking previously in the pod about Granit Xhaka, and I think with, with David Luiz, there's something similar there where he may not be perfection as a player, but there is a lot that he contributes. And in, in terms of the way he is valued within the club, uh, as a man, as a human, as a, uh, a friend, as, a, as an example, he is highly, highly regarded and valued. And they love having him around the place. And I think that was something that was evident from day one. It felt like it was a bit of a breath, breath of fresh air. I think he's very motivating to people around him, um, particularly when he's up himself, because he is quite an emotional character. And I think when he's up, everyone knows about it. And when he's not so up, he can feel it as well. But I think he does spread a lot of good vibes within the camp. Uh, my biggest surprise really was it was a, a year deal, because I think when you're signing a player, uh, he was 32 at the time of, of signing and an experienced defender, you know, in a way, why don't you do a loan for a year? I don't really understand why you would actually purchase a player of that age for one year uh, with, you know, with an option. So it just, that was the bit that felt a little bit head scratching. And just to jump in on that, I mean, Kia Drabshin himself has said that Arsenal had a, a, a date, a time limit under which they had to enact the option for the second year. That has passed now. Um, now, that doesn't mean there won't be negotiations. It doesn't mean there won't eventually be an agreement. But it's interesting that Arsenal have allowed that option to elapse. And, and one of the things, you know, that hasn't been disputed is the size of Dave Luiz's salary. I mean, you're looking at approximately £10 million a year. And maybe it is the case that in a post-COVID world, you know, as much as Luiz might be a positive presence around the training ground and a decent player when he's at it, two hundred grand a week is not something Arsenal can commit to given their current situation. Plus, there's a lot of centre-backs at the club. So, you know, there does need to be some pruning there. And I think if, you, if part of that, that, that has to be a balancing act between a financial decision and a technical decision in the world that we're in. And that maybe complicates it a bit, because I think if you probably said to Mikel Arteta, ideally, who would you like to keep and who would you be willing to um, uh, advise the club to offload... David Luiz would probably be on the keep list and others might well be on the shift list. But if you have to factor in differing salaries, it, it, that might influence the decisions that get made. I think there's Sorry. also a point to be made about the, the figures that you talk about in the article seeming in, in this sort of post-COVID world that we're living in now. It, it's, uh, they do seem eye-watering. They might have seemed quite normal before all this started. But now we just look at it and think, oh, my God, surely people are not going to be spending money quite like they used to. Um, as we've said before, there is a 30-day free trial if you'd like to listen to this show and plenty of the other content that comes out from The Athletic. Go on to athletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod for your 30-day free trial. Amy and James, you both, uh, got, you both uh, uh, wrote a piece um, and I was involved in this as well. I, I spoke to you about uh, the what you call the return of, uh, of, of the king uh, when Thierry Henry uh, came back to Arsenal, Amy, you we chatted on the phone about this. One of the one of the best nights I've, I remember at uh, at the Emirates. Well, I just think it's a, a a really fascinating thing that you've got like nostalgia happening in real time in front of you, 
And that was the thing that was so amazing. There was all this kind of loveliness and warmth and excitability and um, a feeling of worship and love that everyone had for Henri. Almost a disbelief to see him again. And then it, it was just too good to be true that he scores the definitive Thierry Henry goal right in front of everybody's eyes. And when you look back at great moments of, of uh, you know, you, uh, the things you enjoy, the things that make your heart sing the most when you're watching football, it tends to be like a really important game or something massive at stake. And it was third round of the cup. And don't get me wrong, that obviously means something. But compared to winning trophies and qualifying for Europe and derbies and all those sorts of things like that. Uh, yeah, a home cup tie against what was a lower division Leeds United side shouldn't necessarily have been as meaningful and as powerful as it was. And that was because it was all about this this kind of rekindling of, of this love affair uh, with Thierry Henry. And the fact it meant so much to him and he went on to express that it was him scoring as a fan and feeling how the people in the stands feel uh, for all the years that they watched him was 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 just beautiful and it's something that means a lot to people that were there you can tell from all the people that spoke about it and the recollections they had that it was it was one of the one of the experiences that stays quite strong in their mind James after last week's podcast uh, I had a little chat with Amy and she interviewed me for the piece and uh, it left it left me with a warm glow for the rest of the day I'm not surprised. I mean, actually, uh, there is a contribution from me in the piece and my sort of uh, personal story at this moment is that I wasn't there. Uh, I was on stage yes. and came off to a text message about Thierry Henry scoring. And even then I felt chills go down my spine. You know, it must have been an absolutely extraordinary thing to witness in the flesh. And one of the people we spoke to was John Champion, who was commentating for ESPN, who had the rights for the FA Cup at the time. And he said that before the game, he was kind of on his way to the ground, you know, going over his prep in his head. And he walked past the statue of Thierry Henry on the stadium concourse. And he thought to himself, have I ever been at a game where there's been a statue of one of the players outside? And it was quite incredible. As Amy says, it was nostalgia in action. It was the past coming to life, the statue animating and scoring the goal that we all knew him so well for scoring. And... Yeah, Tayo, I mean, our producers made a brilliant programme called The Return of the King, an audio show. You might have heard it before. That's a brilliant audio accompaniment to this written piece. So, yeah, look forward to hearing that again. Yeah, I'm, honestly, just read the article, listen to the piece and just wallow in that evening one more time. It's definitely <laughs> worth it. Or, or for you, James, the first time. Uh, <laughs> and um, before we go, let's have a song from each of you. Maybe it's about Project Restart. What have you got, Amy? Well... My song is about what's going on in the world. Uh, public enemy, fight the power. That's it for the Handbrake Off podcast for this week. Uh, thank you to Amy and James. Thank you to Lee Dixon and David Ornstein. And thank you to our producer, uh, Thierry Henry. Thierry Henry. <laughs> <laughs> We've kept that quiet. We should get him on one week. If he unmuted, it'd be great. <laughs> I'll do that again. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> 
Just you've right. got to say, oh, and Tayo. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, uh, when I say Thierry Henry, I mean, of course, Tayo Papula. I see him in much the same way, I'll be honest with you. Um, this has been Handbreak Off. I'm Ian Stone. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, everyone. Mm-hmm.